This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. What up, Dr. Jana? Hello. I forgot to ask you, I don't think I've ever brought this up on the podcast, but how long have you been a sex researcher? How long have you been doing this? Well, if you count from when I started my PhD at Cornell, it's been 11 years. 11 years. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and when you uh, were growing up, was that something you said, like, when you're, like, sitting around, like, the playground, I want to be a sex researcher when I grow up? <laughs> no, no, no. Not in the not on the playground. So my dad was a professor at the university in Macedonia and Skopje of something completely different. He right. was an electrical engineering pro- okay. professor. But I knew that lifestyle. Like, I knew what a professor at a university looked like. And cool. so I always knew I wanted to do a PhD. I didn't know yet what it was going to be in, Okay, but I knew I wanted to be uh, a scientist of some sort and an educator and a professor. Yeah, that was my that was my dream of what I was going to be when I grew cool. up. So then you became a sex nerd, right? And doing a lot of research, <laughs> right? Isn't that what they call it? Isn't that lovingly what you guys are called? Yes, sex nerds? yes, absolutely. I'm a very proud sex nerd. Cool. Yes. That that crystallized for me when I was a an undergrad in Macedonia. I did my undergrad there at one of the two universities right. that existed at the time. <laughs> right. And I was a psych major, and there were a couple of uh, studies that I did that I got involved in that had to do with sexuality. And then when time came to pick my topic for my PhD, I asked myself what was going to keep my interest for the rest of my life. Because once you pick a PhD topic, you're kind of stuck with that, unless you completely change your career. Right. right? You're kind of stuck with that for the rest of your life, that you're going to study that and you're going to devote your professional career to that. I was like, what is that one thing of all the psych stuff? And I was really interested in all sorts of psych-related things, but if there was going to be one thing that was going to be my thing for the rest of my life, of course it was going to be sex. It was sort of a no-brainer that it was going to be sex. I mean, what is more fascinating than sex? And now you've reached the pinnacle with your very own podcast. This is the ride. signs of sex. Yeah, and now speaking (laughs) of sex studies, what do we got today on the show? Oh, today we have something really interesting. You've heard the saying, once a cheater, always a cheater, right? No, that's a saying? (laughs) Oh, come on. All right, yeah, I have. (laughs) Of course, we all have. Well, today on the show, we have Kayla Knopp, who's going to talk to us about her latest study that gives us an answer to this question. Kayla sounds like another sex nerd. (laughs) She is a sex nerd in the making. She's a PhD student at the University of Colorado in Denver. Sweet, let's go. The Science of Sex. Foreplay. So, Dr. Jana... Teenage girls. Yes, what do we have today? Uh, yeah, teenage girls are being pressured into having anal sex. Pressured now, into having anal yeah, sex. Yeah. Oh, the number of millennials having anal sex have doubled in the last 12 years. One of the largest studies of millennials has revealed 15% have had anal sex compared to 7% of young people in 1990. So that's a big jump. So what is the explanation for the popularity or the more people trying of anal sex? Oh boy. Well, come on, you my sex nerd. What do you got? For, what do you got for me? <laughs> well, first of all, it, it, these numbers are, are really interesting, and I think we should give a little bit of context as to where these numbers are coming from. And this is from nationally representative studies in the UK. Okay. So this is not not the US, although the US probably shouldn't be too different. But I was gonna say we're pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. more more or less, but. This is the UK, right. and these data are coming from this national representative study that is being done every 10 years in the UK. It's interesting that in 1990, the numbers of both boys and girls 16 to 18 who had had anal sex was about 7 or 8%. Then 10 years later, in 2000, still 7 or 8%. And then 10 years later, in the 2010-2012 uh, wave, it had doubled to something like 15 or 16%. So it's really interesting that we're seeing this change only in the last 10 years, whereas it kept steady yeah. before that, the, the 10 years before that, there was no change. I think there's a one-word answer for this. It's something we've discussed on the show. Porn. <laughs> Pornography. Yeah, you blaming it on porn? I definitely do. I actually read that said that previous studies suggest anal sex has become more common among young people due to having greater access to pornography. And it makes sense, to be honest with you, as a kid growing up, I didn't really know about anal sex at mm-hmm. all until someone flipped on a porno and I'm like, whoa, that I didn't <laughs> realize that, that went there like yes. that. That's cool. So there is some indication that more and more mainstream porn does include anal sex these days and that is, for as long as young kids are being exposed to mainstream porn, they are kind of getting this idea or and not just getting the idea 
that this is possible, but also getting the idea that this is pretty common yeah. behavior, and therefore they come to expect it from their uh, real-life partners as opposed to these imaginary scenarios that they see in porn. So I definitely think porn plays a role. I also think just being more open about talking about all sorts of things in the in the media and writing about it it's not i think it's just more accepted to to talk about alternative ways of sexual pleasure or various sexual activities i mean we've been talking a lot more about kink and all sorts of kinky things and threesomes and like all of these sort of non-typical or the non-standard behaviors are being discussed more and more, not just in porn, but in other non-porn media. And my only concern with this kind of rise in anal sex is the fact that as kids, and I don't know about you, uh, Dr. Jana, uh, terrible at sex. Didn't know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> to, uh, to me, it, it's disconcerting to think about kids experimenting with anal sex because it's it's not the from what I've heard from you talking about on the show. It's not the easiest thing to just jump into, right? So for kids to be doing it, that's the one thing that kind of scares me a little bit. I mean, to me, the problem isn't that kids are doing it; is that kids who are not educated yeah, about yeah. it are right. doing it, right? And people who are uneducated yes. about it doing it. Period. Yeah. Like, I, I don't care if it's a sixteen-year-old or a forty-six-year-old. Right. If you are not doing it right, if you're doing it the way you see it done in porn, that is a problem because then you're going to end up hurting people. Now, but again, I don't think the solution is tell people not to have this or hide it from them. That train has yeah. left the station. That's long gone. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is educate people to do it right and not to think of what they see in porn as the way to go about it, right? Because there is never any prep time that is being shown in pornography. Right. You have these really massive penises entering anuses like right. right off the bat and starting to pound immediately. Like that's not how it works. You got to take it slow. Yeah. You got to use lots of lube. Very often in, in mainstream porn, they don't even use lube. They put a little bit of saliva yeah. and just go at it. Sure. And that's, just not the way it works. But I think the bigger problem here is the pressure. Not this study that you just uh, brought up, but other studies have shown that very often, not just teens, but women in general, you know, young adult women are saying that a lot of the time they're being kind of pressured into having anal sex by their male partners who are seeing this in porn and kind of expecting that that would be the norm. And they're not necessarily excited by the idea themselves. Yeah. And then when their male partners don't do it right, because nobody knows how to do it right, right. The, the women who never really thought about it or prepped for it, they don't know how to do it. And the guys think they're just going to do the porn thing. Right. They end up having these very unpleasant and painful kinds of anal sex experiences. And that's really sad because, I've, as we've talked about, and I'm obviously a huge proponent of good anal sex or pleasurable anal yeah. sex and consensual anal right. sex. You're not for the bad anal sex. <laughs> I'm definitely not for yeah, the bad yeah. anal sex. I think bad sex is bad, but bad anal sex is much worse than bad vaginal sex because it has so much more potential for physical harm gotcha, yeah. and, and pain more so than bad vaginal sex. So like <laughs> bad sex is like bad pizza. It's acceptable. But bad anal sex is sort of like bad sushi. Whereas that could just, well, I'm sorry. Oh my God, I love this. I, I made you choke. <laughs> but yeah, so bad anal sex is like sushi because you cannot have bad sushi or you will be deathly ill. Yes, you'll whereas, be sick. Whereas bad mm -hmm. pizza? That's all right. You know, it's not the best pizza I ever had, but I'll finish right, it off. Right. All right. You can use that in like one of your that. NYU studies if you want. All right. So we run the gamut here. So we, we got the young end here. So I got this great story that has to do with the older demographic here. Okay. Men have a higher sex drive, better erections, and orgasms after getting a vasectomy. Ah. These guys were three more times likely to experience an increase in frequency after getting a snip then a decrease. So four out of ten have surveyed said their sex lives had significantly improved. Mm-hmm. Since having a vasectomy, mm -hmm. which is wild. Like, does, does a switch go off in their head to be like, oh, wait a minute, I can't procreate anymore, so I can just do this more and have more fun with it? Is that basically yes. what it is? So, first of all, what you were saying, you know, four in 10 or, or something like that, or in one of these studies, about 12% said that they were having more sex yeah. after a vasectomy, and only 5% said that they were having less sex than they were. But that means that the vast majority of men didn't actually change much. Okay, right. so the, the majority of men who got a vasectomy were still having more or less the same amount of sex as they were. Their their um, experience of that was no worse or better. Right. But for those people who did experience a change in their sex lives after the vasectomy, more of them said that it was a positive change than those who said it was a negative change. And yeah, I mean, to some extent, you can think of this like they were 
having some level of anxiety or worry about getting their partners pregnant before that, and now they don't have to worry about that. So that frees you to have more sex or have sex in a way that doesn't create that fear or, yeah. or worry about something that you don't want to worry about. It's funny because I never thought that guys really worried about that stuff. I think, <laughs> I think. <laughs> what you think guys just want to have babies when they don't want them? No, I think it's, it's the, the sort of the sexist thing to say here is I think the guys expect the women to handle the birth control end of the Shh. the sex factor. Sure, very often they do, but yeah. then when that is not an option, when they know, very often guys who get vasectomies are men who are in long-term relationships already and they've already had however many kids that they wanted to have and they don't want anymore. So, yeah. you know, it's it's this thing where like, oh, I don't I really don't want to worry about this anymore and for whatever reason my wife or my long-term girlfriend is not on birth control or cannot be on birth control or for whatever reason chooses not to be. Yeah. Um, and then you have the guys who are like, I don't want to worry about this at all, period, even when they're single. I literally just met a guy last week who was in his late 20s. Okay who had already gotten a vasectomy a couple of years before. So he got the vasectomy when he was like 25 or 26 because he was certain he did not want kids and he did not want to have to worry about that or have any of his partners ever worry about that, wow. period. And so, yeah, I think... If so he was super that, sexually active, right? It's, or it's He was it relatively sexually active. I, I We didn't actually talk about the Numbers. level of sexual <laughs> act, <laughs> acts and partners that he had, but obviously he was sexually active and was planning on being sexually active in his life. <laughs> For the <laughs> and, near future, yeah. Yes, and did not want children to come out of that sexual activity, and he didn't want to worry about that. So It's funny, too, because at the top you mentioned about how we're very similar, the U.S. and the U.K. in terms of sexuality and everything mm. like that. There was a, f a funny thing that come out of this vasectomy thing. One in ten eligible men get vasectomies here in the States. That's half the rate of men in Canada and the United Kingdom. Mm. So, so what like do you two think? two out of ten. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think... Are we more like virile men and we're, we just don't want to cut out of our system kind of thing? I think to some extent there is more masculinity kind of wrapped up in fertility for Americans. And certainly Americans have the highest birth rate of all developed nations. We have more babies oh. than Canada does per woman. That's how you, yeah. you uh, calculate birth rates. But we have higher rates of pregnancy and births per woman than Canada, than the UK, than Australia, than all the uh, northern European countries. Like all of the developed nations in the world, we have by far the highest birth rate. So I, so we do have more of this like making babies mentality yeah. to begin with. Hmm. And then I think there might also be something to what you were just saying about men here being more of the, well, that's her problem kind of thing. Whereas men in yeah. some of these other countries are being a little more gender egalitarian in that in that regard. And it's almost like we're as, as advanced as we are in the States, we almost have like a caveman quality, <laughs> right? It's sort of the fact that in other countries, they're like, oh, okay, I want to control us. I'll get the vasectomy. Whereas here's like, I'm not getting vasectomy. What are you talking That's not my problem. That's a girl's problem. <laughs> well, we like to think of ourselves as the most progressive nation in the world. But that is not true on many fronts. And certainly when it comes to some of these attitudes and, and gender stereotypes, we are far from being the most egalitarian nation in the world. It's almost like we're so immature, like we're all about having big guns, big trucks, <laughs> uh, you know, having the biggest mm -hmm. dicks possible that are still working till mm -hmm. the till the day they die. Mm -hmm. Where like I think that's sort of part of the American way. I don't think that's on the uh, the Declaration of Independence or anything like that or Constitution, <laughs> but I think that's a big part of this country, right? Yeah, I think so. And we trail some of the Northern European countries in in terms of some of these trends, like. Remember a few episodes ago, we were talking about threesomes with two men and a woman and how the guys were so much less homophobic than maybe they used to be. And I think America is a little behind on those kinds of things. I think we'll get there mm. at some point where this homophobia, even even this like subtle homophobia that may have to do with having two guys in, in a sexual in scenario, yeah. yeah, where they're not actually interacting with each other, being less threatening to guys. So we do still have this notion of masculinity that's much more typical, stereotypically masculine here in the U.S. than some of these other uh, developed Western nations. And hopefully we'll get there, but yeah, a little, a little more slowly. Yes. And America, to be fair, is a very big country mm -hmm. that is less 
homogeneous than some of these other. I mean, Canada is a big, is a big country too, but some of these northern Europe or all of the northern European countries are tiny by comparison. Yeah, and we got so, like 300 million people walking around here in the states. Yeah, Norway has like four or five <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So, and those are a lot more similar. Like these are all people who come from a similar background, racial and ethnic and and historical and all that. So they they share a lot more similarities. Whereas here you have everything. You have those kinds of people who are very similar in their ways of thinking to the Norwegians, but then you have all these other people who are not at all similar, who are still in a very different mindset. I got to wrap things up, but I was just thinking, so having a vasectomy, would that make a man more likely to cheat? Because maybe he doesn't have to worry about spreading his seed <laughs> to, towards other women uh, in his uh, region? That's a really good question. I don't think we have an answer to that. But let's talk about another factor that may be related to increased rates of cheating, and that's whether you've cheated before or not. The Science of Sex goes deeper. A study published recently in the Archives of Sexual Behavior weighed in on the widespread belief that once a cheater, always a cheater. Based on a nationwide sample of almost 500 people in non-marital romantic relationships who were followed every four to six months over a period of five years as they ended their initial relationship and then entered a second one, found that there may be some truth to that saying. Specifically, those who had cheated on their partner in the first relationship were three times more likely to have cheated on their next partner compared to the people who had not cheated on the first partner to begin with. And the numbers were 45% for the initial cheaters versus 18% of the non-initial cheaters. So not quite once a cheater, always a cheater, but once a cheater, more likely a cheater again. It doesn't yes. quite roll. <laughs> no, that's not as snappy as the first one. Yeah. Yes, but that's more accurate. Mm-hmm. So here with us today is the lead author of the study, Kayla Knopp. Kayla Knopp is currently a PhD candidate in clinical psychology at the University of Denver. She works under the mentorship of Dr. Galena Rhodes, Dr. Howard Markman, and Dr. Scott Stanley in the Center for Marital and Family Studies in the Department of Psychology. Her research focuses on couples and romantic relationships with particular focus on commitment processes, diversity, and statistical modeling. She is also a clinician with expertise in couple therapy and LGBTQ issues and teaches undergraduate courses in introduction to psych and research methods. Kayla Nav, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So we're going to talk about infidelity today. And I was just wondering, how did you end up studying this? So I am kind of broadly interested in commitment in people's romantic relationships. And so that has led me to looking at a bunch of different facets of commitment. Other research that I'm doing looks at the defining the relationship or the DTR talk in relationships, so how people establish commitment. And then I've looked at breakup. Um, And infidelity, I think, is a really important aspect of like how people maintain commitment over time or sometimes don't, um, how they violate their commitments sometimes. So I'm just really interested in how all of those processes work for people. And infidelity is pretty common in our society. How common exactly is it? Yes, it is. Yeah. So it's a little bit tricky because it depends somewhat on how we ask the question and who we ask the question of. Um, Most research has looked at it, um, has looked at sexual infidelity specifically in married couples. We typically find that when we ask in that way, infidelity happens um, to around 20 to 25 percent of marriages. So it's pretty high, you know, a quarter to a fifth Mm -hmm. of marriages. Infidelity is more common even in dating couples. We usually see numbers around 40 to 50 percent in dating couples. Because the commitment among dating couples is lower, you assume, right? Yeah, yeah. We think that it's partly because the commitment is lower. And also dating couples sometimes have different thresholds for what's considered to be infidelity. Um, So, for example, if um, in some of my research with really young dating couples, like teenagers and really young adults, anything from, you know, holding hands to texting someone else is sometimes considered infidelity. So that might be part of it. And married people wouldn't consider that infidelity? (laughs) Not typically. (laughs) Not typically. Interesting. How in detail are you talking about the sex here? Because, you know, there's always like, is oral sex considered sex or anything like that? Or are you? Just, yeah. Is it just an umbrella term of, of sex? It depends. Um, some studies get really specific and they just say like sexual intercourse, which of course that's going to be the most conservative estimate because I can imagine that there are lots of sexual activities like oral sex and um, you know even you know sexting or phone sex, something like that. Mm. That a lot of people would consider to be infidelity that wouldn't fall under that umbrella. So um, other research has a more general kind of terminology, like they'll just ask, have you had sex or sexual relations with somebody else? Yes, and the numbers obviously are going to depend 
greatly on yeah. how broadly you ask this question, right? Have exactly. you ever done any of those things from sexting to flirting to, I don't know, just looking yeah. at someone? A massage. <laughs> lustfully. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah, the way to exactly. sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. Okay, but those are some baselines like 20-25% of married couples and maybe up to 40-50% of dating couples. Mm-hmm. And we know that it's usually damaging for a relationship when an infidelity happens. Can you tell us a little more about what ways it's damaging in? Are there some ways to quantify that damage that gets done? Um, most relationships where there's been infidelity experience declines in relationship quality, more conflict. That's probably not too surprising. Not all people actually end their relationships after infidelity, but it does make breakup or divorce more than twice as likely. Mm. And we also know that the betrayal involved in infidelity tends to cause some pretty substantial personal distress to the people affected. Um, There are actually some models of infidelity treatment that consider infidelity to be a form of trauma, um, Mm -hmm. a betrayal trauma. So it can be quite painful for the people involved. Damn, that sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sounds like people get PTSD from it or something. Kind of. Um, the models of, of intervention are, are sort of similar to trauma therapies. They use a lot of the same principles in terms of, I mean, you can, you can think of it as though your, your whole worldview about your partner has been shifted, which is really similar to a lot of the psychological mechanisms of other kinds of trauma. Right. And obviously that will depend on exactly what happened and who the people yeah. were and you know, how the infidelity took place and how frequent exactly. it was and all that. So not everybody is going to experience it as PTSD. And also the religious aspect, one thing we haven't mentioned yet. I mean, we've seen couples stay together because mm-hmm. of the fact that they're either Catholic or whatever Christianity they are, that they're so devout that oh, they forgive their spouse. Oh, is there any yeah. research on that that you're familiar with? Are religious people more likely or less likely to stay married after infidelity? Um, in general, religious people are less likely to get divorced overall, right. although religious folks, um, at least in the U.S., tend to be less likely to get involved in infidelity, although there are some exceptions to that. Um, and that finding is actually different in different cultural contexts. So there are some um, European contexts, for example, where um, religion is not protective um, against infidelity. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of it depends. <laughs> This is actually one of the risk factors for infidelity, especially in the U.S., as you mentioned. Uh, People who are religious are less likely to cheat on their partners. What Mm -hmm. are some, and there's been a lot of research on various risk factors for infidelity or who's more likely to cheat. So, before we get to the factor that you explored in your study, can you tell us a little bit about what we know from some of the past research about other risk factors? So, generally, we see that infidelity tends to be more common among people with more opportunity um, and also, in some cases, more social power. So, for example, people whose work gives them lots of opportunity to cheat um, if they have to travel away from home frequently, for example. Um, They're staying in a lot of hotels with a lot of coworkers around their same age, um, that tends to create more opportunity and more um, higher rates of, of infidelity. Men have historically cheated more frequently than women, probably because men have often had those positions with the kind of opportunity. Um, but that gender gap actually seems to be closing to some extent in more recent years. Mm-hmm. Including um, your study, you didn't find any yes. gender differences, did you? Indeed, we didn't mm-hmm. find any gender differences either in rates or in um, sort of the associations with infidelity, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not too surprising that we also see that infidelity is more um, common among people who have attitudes saying that infidelity is more acceptable, sure. um, and also among people who have higher levels of narcissistic personality traits. So there mm-hmm. are some people who just have less of a problem with it. And then people in general are more likely to cheat when they're less satisfied with and less committed to their relationships. Well, let's go back to narcissism, because that's interesting. So these narcissists who cheat... They convince themselves that they're not doing anything wrong? What, what, is, what is their mentality there? That's a great question, and I don't actually know if we know the answer to that. I don't know that we know too much about sort of the thought processes that underlie those decisions. We just know that if you survey a bunch of people on their narcissistic personality traits and also on their infidelity behavior, they are a lot more likely to report engaging in infidelity. Narcissistic personality traits tend to be more you know, self-focused and tend to be able to justify actions that benefit the self to the expense of others um, in all realms. So I would imagine it's something similar. Yeah, and just not caring as much about how your actions might affect the other person. Mm-hmm. Just kind of It's almost like a sociopath. 
A little bit. Um, there are some sort of fine-tuned differences between, um, like, narcissistic personality traits and, and um, antisocial personality traits. Like, um, narcissists are really quite concerned with, like, the the maintenance of their self-image, and it tends to be a pretty fragile self-image. So they're really willing to do a lot to make sure that they get personal benefit and that they feel good. Um, and it sort of doesn't matter how that impacts other people. Whereas folks with antisocial traits tend to just not care <laughs> about okay. other people. Right, right. How about some biological differences? Yeah, so there are a lot of um, theories about um, biological differences and some evolutionary theories that go into that that suggest that um, based on reasons like hormones and like um, sort of reproductive motivations that men, for example, might be more uh, willing to cheat or more motivated, um, you know, to have multiple sexual partners. And honestly, that's really far from my sort of clinical field. I'm mm -hmm. much less familiar um, with uh, how strong that evidence is. I, I know that okay. those are theories that are out there for sure. Yeah, I'm actually thinking about some some research looking at dopamine, dopaminergic system, like dopamine receptor genes and stuff like that, where people who have the more adventurous form of that mm -hmm. gene are much more likely to have cheated on a partner as well as do all sorts of other kinds of uh, more adventurous sexual behavior. So, so I think yeah. part of the reason why some people are more likely to cheat probably has to do with their biology as well. They're more kind of more adventurous or novelty seeking or have uh, a more difficult time controlling their impulses, even though they think they shouldn't be cheating, but it's just harder for them not to kind of thing. Absolutely. I'm sure that's true. I know that there are some measures of um, a construct called sociosexuality, which mm -hmm. capture a lot of those same traits. And I'm quite sure that that has some pretty strong biological underpinnings like you described. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Let's bring you back to what you were studying in your study, which is basically the once a cheater, always a cheater saying that so many mm -hmm. people are familiar with, and that's the risk factor of past infidelity. Why is this such an important factor to examine? And what did we know about this before your study came along? Like, what are the gaps that were left for you to fill? So I wanted to study this because, as you said, the once a cheater, always a cheater attitude is really common. Um, and it's even really common among, like, professionals, among couple therapists that I've talked to. But there's actually really little research data, very, very little research data to back that up. A lot of my work has tried to find research data to inform relationship decisions that are relevant to people's everyday lives. Um, and in this case, I thought that knowing whether people really were more likely to cheat kind of again and again could potentially be really important for how people want to make decisions about their relationships going forward. Whether that's a person who struggles to stay faithful, what kinds of decisions might they want to make in their future relationships, or somebody who is considering a partner or knows they have a partner who has a past history of infidelity, um, if there was a way that I could provide some information to help them think about making decisions going forward. Mm. And as I mentioned, we really kind of knew very little about this. There was a little bit of research that had suggested that past infidelity increased the risk for future infidelity, but generally it didn't do a very good job of distinguishing between whether that past infidelity occurred in actually a previous relationship or previously in the same relationship. And mm. I think that's a really important distinction. Right. Whether you're cheating on the same partner multiple times or yeah. it's a different partner partner. Because very yeah. often I think we have this notion that once you find the one, you're not going to be cheating on that the one, but all the right. other ones, you know, there may not have been the one. That's why you ended up cheating on them kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So was this a pattern that sort of stuck with people across different relationship contexts, kind of regardless of the partner? Um, that, I think that was a really important question. Um, and then I also just wanted to look at, you know, what actually did that magnitude of increased risk look like? So how much more at risk were people mm. if they had had a past history of infidelity? Ooh, so interesting. <laughs> okay, so what did your study do? How did you go about answering this question? So I used data um, that were actually from a larger study of romantic relationship development that um, had been done in my lab. In that study, they followed almost 1,300 people for 11 waves of survey data for about five years. Um, and it was a really wonderful data set because it was this big longitudinal data set over time. It used a nationally representative sample of unmarried mm. adults across the U.S. Nationally representative um, sample of unmarried yes. adults. Wow. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. 
yes, they spent a lot of money and time on this data set, um, and it was really excellent data that got a ton of detail about people's relationships over time, whether they stayed in the same relationship or changed into different relationships. And it was a sample that really mirrored uh, U.S. demographic data in terms of things like race and ethnicity, income, education. So we can um, sort of broadly generalize to people in the U.S., um, at least sort of younger unmarried people who were in the sample, which was really helpful. These were 18 to 35-year-olds initially, right? That's right. They had to be between 18 and 35 at the start of the study, and they also had to be in an unmarried relationship for at least two months with somebody of the opposite sex. So this was a presumably heterosexual sample, although we did not actually measure sexual orientation. So we know that they're people who tended to have mixed gender relationships. Okay, so they were all in relationships when they started, at least two months long, and of the other sex. Mm -hmm. And then you follow them for five years. Yeah. And you took the sample or the subsample that then went on to end the first relationship and start a second relationship, right? Exactly. So I, I chose all the people from that sample who had at least two different relationships over the course of the study. So that left me with 484 participants who gave me data on two kind of subsequent relationships over that five-year span. And then you asked about infidelity. So tell us about how you yeah. define infidelity. and Yeah, so that's a tricky issue, um, <laughs> defining infidelity here. Um, it was done in a similar way as a lot of pr uh, previous research. It was basically defined as having sex with somebody other than and the relationship partner. And that's the, that was the, the way it was asked in that larger study because infidelity wasn't really a focus of the original research study. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, an imperfect definition of infidelity for a lot of reasons. It doesn't capture all of what some couples might considered to be infidelity. So it doesn't capture emotional affairs or online affairs, which we know right. can be similarly problematic for right. relationships. And sexual and relations can be defined differently by different people, right? It, exactly yes, what it sure that can. means. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we're not really sure how participants interpreted that phrase. Um, Going back and, to the beginning, holding hands, maybe that was involved. Some yeah, holding. for some right? people and not for <laughs> others. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So perhaps some people had a really kind of low threshold. And then it, it, that definition is also going to capture some things and call it infidelity, even when those things actually aren't infidelity. So like consensual non-monogamy. Um, right, open relationships, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's for sure a problem. Um, we do have reason to think that in this particular sample, we asked kind of in a roundabout way a little bit later on about whether participants engaged in open relationships. And so we think that rates of non-monogamy, um, consensual non-monogamy in this sample are actually pretty low. So we don't think that this is a huge problem. But in the future, um, I think researchers really do need to be careful to distinguish between infidelity and consensual sex outside the relationship. Right. So the question should be asked like something like, have you had sexual relations with someone other than your partner that your partner wouldn't be okay with or something like that. Yes. That was not yeah, consensual. Exactly. Right. Yep. In some, in some other research that I'm doing with one of my colleagues here at University of Denver, Lane Ritchie, we basically wrote a question that, that phrased it as, have you done anything that violated the commitment agreement between you and wow. your partner? Sometimes this is called cheating. And so that leaves it really up to the participants to say this was okay or it wasn't. Right, right, right. That, that's probably a much better way at getting at that. Mm -hmm. I know we joke about like what we consider what is cheating, what kind of sex. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I think it's all relative to the person. So if you feel mm -hmm. cheated on or you cheated on him or her, it doesn't really matter, right? It's still cheating in your book. Right. It doesn't matter what yeah. exactly the act was as long yes. as it's perceived as cheating. By one person yeah. in the relationship. Which is yeah. why I think it's really important for people to talk about what infidelity is to them and to their partners when they get into a relationship because you know I might think watching porn is not cheating but for you it might be cheating and then like I might be secretly or not even knowingly cheating on yeah. you all the time right yeah exactly I think it's really important and I mean a, a lot of research suggests that it's not it's not having sex with somebody outside your relationship or doing any other specific act that's a problem it is the fact that someone feels betrayed mm -hmm. so it's that sense that I thought that you were going to behave one way and you didn't and that really hurt me so mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right that couples really need to be on the same page about what's okay and what's not in a relationship and to check to make sure that their expectations about what their partner is or isn't going to do are shared and are reasonable. Okay, so back to the, the study. Using your definition of infidelity, what did you find was the overall prevalence in the sample of how many people cheated, had cheated on their partners? Because you also asked about whether they thought their partners had cheated on them. 
So what mm-hmm. were the prevalences of that? So we found that 44% of our participants reported their own infidelity during the study. Damn, um, which is, yeah, which is right in that, that sort of range that we um, would expect to see for dating um, unmarried participants. Mm-hmm. We asked people then about their partner infidelity, and we sorted that into two categories. People who said that they were certain that their partners had um, engaged in sex outside the relationship, and people who said that they thought so but didn't know for sure. Mm -hmm. So we found that 30% of our participants said that they knew for sure that one or both of their partners had been unfaithful, um, and 18% said that they suspected but didn't know for sure. Um, so if we add up those two partner infidelity categories, uh, almost half of our participants reported their own infidelity and almost half reported partner infidelity. Wow. Why bother getting in a relationship anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say why bother trying to have a monogamous relationship? <laughs> Yeah, I think that, I mean, those are really good questions and important (laughs) questions. Um, I think that this points to the very great need for people to consider, what do I really want out of a relationship? If I am in a a purportedly monogamous relationship, but I'm having trouble staying faithful, like, what is that about for me? Why am I trying to do something that is clearly not, you know, what I'm actually wanting to do? It could also be that people are, you know, staying in relationships much longer than they should, and then using infidelity as a way of getting out of the relationship. Mm-hmm. I just think that this points to the, the the fact that there's a lot of room for people to reconsider how we think about long-term relationships and fidelity, and perhaps people can um, sort of take a little bit more control over what they really want in their relationships. Those were the base rates of infidelity, own and partner. And what were the critical findings in terms of the once a cheater, always a cheater? So we did find that participants who reported their own infidelity in the first relationship that they talked about in our study were about three times more likely to report infidelity again in the second relationship in our study. So three times more likely to say that they had cheated again in the next relationship they had. Compared to? Compared to people who did not have infidelity in the first relationship. Three times. Three times, yeah. Mm-hmm. So in terms of percentages, what that means is that 45% of those who had first relationship infidelity also had second relationship infidelity, but only 18% of those without first relationship infidelity went on to report infidelity in their second relationship. So that's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, that is a big jump. It's almost like yeah. they didn't recognize their mistakes in previous relationships and just kept doing what they were doing even though the other relationship didn't work. Yeah, I, I honestly wasn't sure what to expect when I started this research because I thought, well, we would like to think that we learn from our mistakes. Yeah. So yeah. maybe people who had infidelity once sort of learned, okay, now I know what to look out for, right. so I'll never do that again. And that turns out to really not be true. <laughs> or if it was, like, I chose the wrong kind of partner, now I know better to choose yeah. a, you know, one that I'm not going to feel the need to cheat on or yeah but mm-hmm. apparently not right like, yep and certainly not for everybody I do I'm sure and we can come back to this a little bit later on um, but I, I am sure that there are people who don't go on to cheat again and uh, I think the the things that help them avoid that are really important to find out even even among the initial cheaters you found 55% had not cheated so exactly it's a slight majority although to be fair the second relationships didn't last very long i think on average they lasted about 2.5 years because the the, the whole study only lasted 5 years so yep. presumably there will be more cheating to come once all of those second relationships run their course, course yeah. that's absolutely true yeah we don't know for sure how high the rates of infidelity in those second relationships are going to end up being because we stopped collecting data so I think um, really being able to, to, to follow up in some much longer-term ways would be really important. Right. But do you think like what Dr. John said earlier about maybe maybe it doesn't go up because maybe the fact that they learn from their mistakes and maybe, you know, I'm thinking like I'm looking at a glass half full kind of guy here, <laughs> Kayla. Maybe they, maybe they don't cheat. Maybe they just end their relationship without cheating. Maybe so. And I mean, those relationships did already last two and a half years. Yeah. So um, it could be that they sort of got over the the period of greatest risk. We don't really know. Were there any gender differences or marital status differences in this regard in terms of 
wants a cheater, more likely a <laughs> cheater again? No, there weren't. Um, there were no differences depending on whether participants were married or unmarried or depending on their gender. So that was a little bit surprising to find that this pattern of increased risk based on past infidelity was really the same um, yeah. for a lot of these um, groups where we might typically expect to see differences. Okay, women are totally catching up to men <laughs> in, in, right? in this way, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seems to be the case. And, and again, this isn't we also didn't find um, any differences in overall rates of infidelity between right. men and women in this sample, which I think is pretty telling. Um, but it, it looks like those processes that go on um, for people who continue to cheat over time uh, might be kind of similar um, for different people, depend, regardless of their gender. Right. That's not too surprising yeah. for me, actually. Yeah. yeah. You would expect that. If there is some some effect of past infidelity predicting your future infidelity, that shouldn't be that different for, for men and women. Right. Different races, right. different education statuses, in, in any of those demographics, that's like a human thing that probably happens, right? Yeah, I think so. I think you're right about that. But that doesn't stop people from getting partners, though. Kayla, uh, Dr. John knows nothing about pop culture, but Kevin Hart, he was married, <laughs> had an affair uh-huh. with a woman, left his wife, stayed with this woman, and now he's having a child with the woman. Now, doesn't this woman know that he'll probably cheat on her eventually, which kind of came out uh, you know, in the past few months about it. How do you explain that, that people still want to get with cheaters if they have a history of it? I, I, I know that's probably not part of your study, but just it's crazy that no matter how much of a, you know, a jerk you, you could have. be, people will still want to get with you. I know. I find that kind of surprising, too. There are um, So I was actually just talking with a colleague the other day. I don't actually know that we know all that much about relationships that begin out of infidelity, right? Mm. So if you stay with an infidelity partner. Because that happens that fairly often. Like? It happens yeah. a lot, yeah. yeah. At least yeah. anecdotally, it happens a lot, yeah. So it would be really interesting to know what their thought processes are. Yeah, is there any research on it? I don't know of any research on it. Um, I'd be really interested um, to look into it a little bit more, but I'm not aware of any any findings about that. You don't typically read about that, for example, in like big review papers that address infidelity. Mm. That's not a topic that they cover. Just thinking about it, you can kind of imagine that that idea of the one, you know, the previous person wasn't the one, now this is the one. And and you tend to really lie to yourself. Like when you're infatuated, when you first get together with someone and you have that high levels of infatuation about that person, you just want to think of the positives and downplay the negatives. And and so you're you're more likely to kind of be like, yeah, he's not going to do that to me or she's not going to do that to me. I, I, I'm special. Right. I'm the I'm the right one. That that's and then they'll say once a with. cheater, always a cheater. Once he once, once they get it cheated. does happen, yeah, yes. exactly. They're like, oh, I should have known better. <laughs> once a cheater, always a cheater. Right? Yeah. yeah, we're all very wise in hindsight. I think exactly. <laughs> and there actually, I mean, there are a decent number of evolutionary theories and some data to suggest that people find individuals more attractive when they know that those individuals are attractive to others. Right. Mm. So, um, you, right. I think that might explain a little bit about why people who have been unfaithful are I don't really have much of a problem finding future partners because you know at some level we sort of see well they're clearly very desirable right. so I must really yeah. want them too exactly and what were some of the findings regarding partner infidelity because you also asked about obviously the partner infidelity and and whether that kind of repeated itself from the first relationship to the next those uh, and the partner infidelity seemed to repeat itself as well which I actually find even a little bit more puzzling and interesting um, so people who said that they were certain that their first relationship partners had cheated were about twice as likely to say that their second relationship partners also cheated. And then the findings were even stronger for those who um, had suspicion. So for those who suspected but weren't certain that their first relationship partners had cheated were four times more likely to report being suspicious of their second relationship partners again. Well, that makes sense. It's almost going back to our PTSD thing we were talking about, that they're so damaged that they think there's no way they could ever be in a faithful relationship ever again. Is that your explanation, Joe? Yeah, I think so. Okay. (laughs) Kayla, what do you think? Kayla agrees with me, I bet. I think that that's totally plausible. Um, We know that people's experiences tend to change their worldviews. Um, and one possible explanation is that people sort of learn, well, I guess this is just what I should expect out of relationships. Mm. We know that that tends to happen in communities where partners are a little bit more scarce. 
So if people don't have a ton of partner options, they sort of learn to accept, you know, kind of whatever crap their partners tend to, to put mm. them through. And I and I, I do worry that that might happen to folks who experience infidelity um, over and over again. It could also be something going on um, on the part of the person who says that their partner is cheating. So that person could just be sort of a, um, a suspicious person by nature or somebody, I mean, you know, relationships take two people. So if you're a person who contributes to a relationship context that's more likely to lead to cheating, um, I, I certainly don't want to, you know, blame the victim here, but I do <laughs> yeah. think that it's worth considering, you know, what, what both people bring to the relationship. Because we do know there there is research showing that people differ on the level of suspiciousness that they have, mm-hmm. like the suspicious jealousy when you don't necessarily have very clear indicators that someone's cheating, yet you're always doubting, you're always thinking, oh, if they're not home by a certain hour, they must be with somebody else kind of thing. And that's a, a personality trait. So if you're that kind of person, you're much more likely to think every partner you yeah. have is going to be cheating than someone who's low on that dispositional jealousy. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The last thing that you looked at here was whether people who used to cheat or who cheated once, whether they were more likely to perceive their partners as cheating. Did you find evidence of that? No, we didn't. So that's sort of related to the question of, I mean, I think sometimes, again, this was just based on talking with um, couple therapists and with people in general. Um, There seems to be this perception that somebody who's really suspicious of their relationship partners is probably themselves cheating, right? Uh, Um, So if you're, yeah, if you think you're cheating on me, that's probably because I'm cheating on you. You're projecting it on them, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, we did not find any evidence for that here. We did not find that people who had past infidelity were more likely to go on to suspect their future relationship partners of infidelity. So across different relationships, we didn't find evidence of that. I think it's important to note that we didn't look at that within the same relationship. So Mm -hmm. I I can't necessarily say anything about whether, you know, someone who's very suspicious is more likely to be cheating at the present time. I just know that based on our data, we didn't find that having cheated in the past makes up more likely. All right. So if you're you're suspecting somebody of cheating, that does not necessarily mean that you have cheated yourself in the past. Okay. Right. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think about people who get cheated on multiple times and, it, and they have like a track record of it? Could it be something that they're doing in the relationship? Like the things you've noted, like they're, they're projecting infidelity or something like that. What, what are people doing that are exp- who have experienced, you know, multiple cheaters in their life? It could be a lot of things. Um, in this particular study, one limitation of this study is that we really don't know why any of these things are occurring. So this is just observational data that we collected over time. We don't know anything about what's causing these patterns to happen, right? Um, I'm sure you can imagine a pretty unethical experiment where we would have some people cheat and some people not cheat and then see if that changed anything. But, um, but since we can't do something like that, we really don't know much about the causes. I think for people who have unfaithful partners over and over again. It could be a couple of different things. One is that they could be making unwise choices in their partners. Hmm. So they could be, you know, attracted to a certain type of person who boy. is yeah, or the narcissist, right? Yeah. Um, somebody who is who is more likely um, to be unfaithful, and I think that you know if that's the case, that person might do well to really think carefully about those preferences and maybe talk with a therapist about if they can, you know, make some different choices going forward. It's also possible that they have limited partner options if they live in a community where um, this is true um, in some communities where men tend to be incarcerated at higher rates. For example, women have fewer options. Yeah, you talked so they, about you talked about that in your study about black communities in particular. Yeah. in the U.S., yeah, exactly. So um, black males are really disproportionately um, incarcerated, which means that in a lot of young African-American and black communities, um, there are fewer options for African-American women. Um, so they have is- to sort of put up with wh- whoever guy they end up with is going mm-hmm. to be cheating on them, and, and they're more likely to stay with those partners yeah, pos- because there's no possibly. other option. Right, or just keep yeah, going exactly. out with guys who are going to cheat on them because that's right. all that's left. Right. Exactly, yeah. because they just have, yeah, they have fewer, they have fewer um, other options. So that's another really crappy side effect of um, incarcerating so many people in the U.S. <laughs> so basically these women who have, uh, or men, have get cheated upon multiple times, it's not really just their fault. It's just the bad luck that they're finding dicks that they're attracted to, essentially. Yeah, that's Possibly. part of the reason, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's not all, the, all of the reason, but, though. As, as Kayla was mentioned earlier, and I actually would love for you to expand on that, there, there might be something in the kind of person that you are that creates a dynamic that Mm -hmm. leads the other person to cheat. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, relationships have, a, a couple has two people in it, right? So um, both people contribute to kind of the environment of the relationship. And we know that some people tend to have higher quality and more committed relationships than others. People who are very neurotic, for example, who have um, anxious or avoidant attachment styles, it tends to be harder to be in a relationship with those kinds of people um, because they just, um, they make it a little bit more challenging to maintain um, a healthy and satisfied relationship because of, you know, sort of differences in personality. For, for people who are in relationships with those kinds of people, that may lead to a higher likelihood of cheating because the relationship itself is a little bit more challenging and less satisfying. It's also possible that some people have a less realistic expectations about which activities are okay and which aren't. So if you have a really low bar for what you consider to be cheating um, on the part of your partner, then you're more likely to say that more things are cheating, right? right. So If looking at the whatever bartender in a lustful yeah. way right. and thinking that they're hot, if that's considered cheating uh, in your book, then you're going to be cheated on all the fucking time. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you had mentioned porn earlier, Jana, right. that I think, uh, you know, some people consider porn to be cheating. And I think, you know, especially in the U.S., basically 100% of men look at porn. And so women who think that, you know, looking at porn is, is cheating are likely to get cheated on a lot. So. <laughs> I, I don't think it's exactly 100%. 100% yeah. but, you know, Kaylee, sound like me now with these made-up statistics. <laughs> Leave that to me, okay? <laughs> so what are some of the clinical implications of this research? You as a clinician, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about that. A bit. Yeah, so I think it's really important for clinicians who work with couples or with individuals on their relationships to explore people's relationship histories. Talking through something like a past infidelity with a therapist could help people to figure out what's going on there for me. How likely is it that pattern to follow me into previous relationships and what do I want to do to break that pattern um, in the future if I want to? And for some people that might be taking efforts to guard against infidelity. For example, don't messaging on Facebook with somebody who you might have an affair with, right? Um, and for right, other don't people put that yourself, might... Don't put yourself in temptation kind of yeah. thing, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and for other people that might be, don't make monogamous commitments that you can't keep. So I think even for people who aren't working with a therapist, it's really important to talk with your partner about what's gone on for you in the past, if there has been infidelity, and how that might potentially impact your relationship now. Um, we know that if couples can communicate really well together about their commitment and about their relationship, they can avoid a lot of the risks um, for things like infidelity. So I think that in general, it's just good to be aware of which things in your past could be a risk so that you can make good decisions about um, how you want to avoid those risks. Wow, those are some difficult conversations to be had, especially in the yeah. beginning of the relationship when you're kind of establishing agreements. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, how do you go like, so I've cheated <laughs> on all my partners in the past, and what do we do so that I don't cheat on you? Yeah, I mean, that is a really hard um, conversation. And my, I, I sometimes have a little bit of a trial-by-fire attitude um, for folks really early on in relationships that if your relationship can manage well a conversation like that, then you're likely to be much stronger going forward. Mm. Um, and there's a chance that your relationship might not make it past a conversation like that. I, I come up um, with that idea a lot in my work on the defining the relationship talk, right? That people sometimes want to avoid that talk because, right. you know, what if that leads to the end of the relationship, in right. which case maybe that relationship's better off ending. Right. Yeah, I think that that is a, a really hard conversation. I'm a big advocate of good communication skills in general. I think we know that communication is probably one of the most important things to sustain a long term relationship, regardless of what you're talking about. So um, that's that's a good place to start. I think a lot of the time when we talk about infidelity and these risk factors for infidelity, the focus is always on finding what the risk factors are and then working with those risk factors to decrease chances of infidelity happening. But to uh -huh. play the devil's advocate here, I keep thinking, how about instead of working to prevent infidelity, which we are seeing is so damn common. I mean, if you're talking about 50% of couples experiencing this, especially in today's day and age, how about we all worked on making extramarital or extra dyadic, extra partner sex more acceptable and less of a disaster that has to ruin everything, less of a traumatic PTSD kind of response mm -hmm. in, in, in the way we conceptualize long-term relationships. What do you think about that? I absolutely agree. So, I mean, we first of all, we know that a lot of relationships that involve infidelity don't end. 
Um, even though there is some really strong cultural biases that we have about people who stay in relationships with unfaithful partners, you can see sort of the Hillary Clinton effect, right, mm, where yeah. women who choose to stay with an unfaithful man are, are sort of almost demonized in popular culture in some cases. I mean, I think in general, most of my work focuses on helping people have the kind of relationships they want to have. Not everybody wants to have one monogamous relationship for their entire life, and that's completely fine as long as they don't misrepresent themselves to potential partners um, mm. and as long as they're not making commitments that they can't keep. I totally agree that sexual fidelity is not the only important thing or the most important thing that makes for a good relationship. So on the one hand, I do think that people should keep the commitments that they make. But on the other hand, I also think that we can sometimes really overemphasize the weight or importance of perfect fidelity in a relationship. And that if there's a lot of other really good things going on, that, you know, the option of talking through um, sort of the, the sense of betrayal and why, why did that hurt the way it did and what can we do about that going forward, uh, you know, I think that that can still contribute to a really healthy relationship moving forward. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the, a nuclear disaster in the, <laughs> right. in the relationship. It just feels like the way we've set up things in our in our culture, infidelity seems to be the worst possible thing that one can do to the other right. partner. And people are so often willing to put up with all sorts of other things that seem to me at least worse, like yeah. abuse or addiction or uh, neglect in the relationship or, I don't know, gambling away money and all of these other things. Things, and yet this one thing, if, if somebody mm -hmm. had sex once with somebody else because they were drunk on a during a business trip, that's it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really our, our this really draconian attitude that we have about infidelity is sometimes really disproportionate to the actual harm that it does um, in relationships. Um, and sometimes we set people up to feel more harmed by it than perhaps they need to. Um, mm. So again, I, like, I, I think people should not make commitments that they don't want to make, right? And I, so I think part of the solution to this is there being more ways of, in a socially acceptable way and in a skillful way, negotiating the kinds of relationship commitments that you want and not feeling pressured into making a monogamous commitment if that's not what you want. But also part of the solution to this might be, as you said, kind of change the, the way that we think about um, infidelity as it's not a great thing to do to your partner. It's very hurtful, but it's also not the absolute worst possible thing you could do to another human. Kayla, one of the things I've noticed from uh, relationships that survive infidelity is they separate the love and sex. I yeah. don't know if you've ever heard this argument. I'm like, well, it was just sex. I didn't really love the person kind of thing. Do you think it does matter in terms of relationship survival whether this person just never had no attachment to whoever they cheated with, but the, the love remained between the, the original couple? Yeah, I do think that matters a lot. Um, we know that relationships where the infidelity was sort of a one-off, purely sexual sort of thing, especially if there were mitigating circumstances like alcohol, something like that, those relationships are more likely to survive. Relationships where somebody had, you know, kind of an ongoing emotional connection to someone else, that's a little bit harder to get over. That feels like more of a betrayal to some of the core, you know, aspects of a, a romantic relationship. So you're also a clinician who works with sexual minorities. Do you see some of these things play out differently in non-straight couples compared to straight couples? Yes and no. Um, I think when someone feels betrayed by an infidelity, that seems to work pretty much the same, no matter, you know, the couple type. But I also think that sexual minority couples can teach us something really valuable about different ways to view relationship fidelity. So, um, for example, we know that gay male couples tend to have higher rates of non-monogamy agreements um, than other kinds of couple types, and um, other couples might also benefit from making a conscientious choice about monogamy um, rather than kind of, you know, defaulting to monogamy. Um, I also am doing some um, other research with my amazing colleague, Lane Ritchie, on relationships with bisexual people and how bisexuality can help us to better understand some of the ways that people manage other potential attractions outside of their primary relationship. So um, as an example of that, I've heard um, of some couples, researchers, and therapists suggest that one way to potentially prevent infidelity could be to avoid having friends that you might be attracted to based on their gender, right? So like mm. straight women might want to avoid having male friends, for example. That are good looking. Especially, yeah, yeah, exactly, who are potentially good looking. <laughs> right. um, which would mean that bisexual people could potentially not have any friends. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, right? Which right. Is, which is completely ridiculous. 
ridiculous, right? So, and yet we know that bisexual people are not any less faithful than anyone else. So I think bisexuality can help us challenge some of those um, assumptions, some of those more heteronormative assumptions that we make about how commitment and fidelity work. So um, I think in general, I think sexual minority couples are a really valuable way of, of challenging some of our assumptions and, and better understanding, you know, how people navigate some of these decisions. Awesome. Well, Kayla Knopf, thank you very much for joining us on the Science of Sex podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. The Science of Sex Afterglow. Dr. Jana, I have the perfect subject for Afterglow. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm reading a lot about something called mindful sex, mm. and that mindful sex is mind-blowing sex. <laughs> now, I know mindfulness is all about sort of like shutting yourself off to the outside world and being sort of in a meditative state, but how do you do that while having sex? Because I know I got to concentrate a lot <laughs> when, when I'm having sex. So what's the deal? Right. Well, mindfulness... I mean, more broadly, mindfulness is about being fully present in the moment in whatever it is that you're doing, right? So you can be mindful. Lawn mowing. Sure. Yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> mindful walking, mindful and jumping yes. jacks. Mindful teeth brushing. Okay, mind, cool. You know? All right. Anything. Okay. So you're fully present in doing what you're doing. So both your mind and your body are engaged in this activity. Basically means not being distracted by other thoughts that are coming in that are not related to that activity. So it's not about shutting off your brain, necessarily. Your brain and your body being both fully immersed in whatever it is that you're doing. And when that happens, then you you benefit from that activity. You're much more likely to enjoy the activity, to have this like subjective sense of, of enjoying the activity. You're much more likely to excel in it, to, to do it well. And you mentioned the uh, brushing your teeth. I can imagine you being a mindful <laughs> teeth brusher, right? Just sit, sitting there, just thinking about all about your teeth, because I know exactly. hygiene is very important to you. So you're just all about what's happening with your toothbrush in your mouth at that moment. I'm not always a mindful toothbrusher, okay. uh, but you know, sometimes I I guess I am. <laughs> okay. I'm just trying just trying to wrap it all together. All right. So how does that relate to sex? Because again, it seems like there's a lot more moving parts while you're sure. having sex. Sure. But if you are fully kind of giving yourself into this experience, that is very different than when you're having a lot of distracting thoughts. And very often these distracting thoughts come into your mind when you're having sex. Like, oh, do I look sexy or is there something like hanging from somewhere that it shouldn't be or am I making weird noises am I making weird faces am I making am I... her happy something like that exactly so okay. it, it's not necessarily just about you that's that's a form of distracting thoughts that we call uh, spectatoring when you're evaluating and worrying about what your body looks or what your sexual performance might be, which is the stuff that you just mentioned, like, am I doing this right? Uh, is is she, he, whatever, uh, happy with what I'm doing? So that's not mindfulness? No. Okay. No. So having those, because what you're doing is like you're worrying, you're evaluating, you're constantly thinking, you have this like meta level of processing about what it is that is happening as opposed to just being fully in it and enjoying it. Oh, so mindful sex doesn't even take into account mindful sex would not be you be, you wondering if the person was enjoying it that's that is the opposite of mindful sex right or sort of it's sort of not exactly mindful because you're not thinking about enjoying you're thinking about what it's doing to the other person right so if you have those moments of like oh my god is she loving this or not then that is a moment of being taken out of the moment okay i think it's probably a good idea especially if you don't really know whether whatever is happening yeah. is pleasurable to the other partner it's probably a good idea to have that thought every now and then and then ca calibrate and recalibrate what it is that you're doing. And so it's not like very often it's it's almost impossible to be mindful the entire time from start to it finish. Have to be. Especially, I can't imagine you being mindful the entire right. time. That's, that sounds crazy. Especially if you're having sex with somebody new who you don't know very well, who doesn't know you very well, where you need to do a lot more calibration. Yeah. But, but the more moments of this full immersion you have, and you certainly can, like say that you found a position that seems to be working for both of you, and then you go at it for a little bit. If you can, let's say for five minutes or seven minutes or have a long, you are in that position. If you can just completely focus on that and being with your partner and kind of feeling them and responding to them in this organic kind of way without having these other thoughts coming into your brain, then that 
is mindful and that is going to lead to greater experience of pleasure and orgasm and all that. So you're saying there's, well, I mean, I don't know if you're saying this, but it's not possible to have an entirety of mindful sex, right? Because at one point you're going to have to stop and do something <laughs> or move around. That doesn't just happen naturally unless you're some sort of like Jedi sex warrior or something like that where <laughs> sure. you can just move on to another move without even thinking about it, right? right. I, th- I think Tantra practitioners will tell you that they can <laughs> go and do this for a really, really long period of time. But yeah, probably in most sexual scenarios, there will be moments when like you need to change positions yeah. or do something different or get a glass of water or you know <laughs> take a break, take a break. Yeah. So so of course, but the goal is to be in this as much as you can, and it's not just necessarily because you're taking a break or having thoughts that are unrelated to the sexual experience, like oh my god, I didn't do my laundry. You know, those kinds yeah. of things are obviously distracting and taking you away from the situation. Just like the these worries. That that you might have about what exactly is happening in the moment. Like all of those things are things that take you out of that. I don't have to and worry about that, Dr. Jean. I do drop and fold. Oh, so the launcher good, one will not good. pop into that my will head. Never be so an I'm issue. good. Lucky you. It, it'll and your be partner. other things, but not my laundry. <laughs> like, did I pay my bills? I guess you can automate paying bills. Yes. Um, so, yeah, there's certain ways that you can <laughs> prevent certain distractions. But the reality is that you can never get rid of all the distractions or all the distracting thoughts. It's, it's how you deal with those thoughts, whether once they come in, you end up focusing on them and fixating on them and allowing them to kind of ruin the experience or you kind of take them in and then send them away on their way and kind of bring yourself back into into the experience. This is very similar to uh, meditation in in other aspects of life and being able to kind of recenter, maybe take a deep breath and kind of recenter yourself and bring yourself back into the experience. And one way to increase your ability to remain mindful during sex is to practice mindfulness in your everyday life in other things that are not sex related. You know, maybe sexuality is a particularly high stakes kind of scenario for a lot of people that is a lot more anxiety provoking or having these distracting thoughts provoking ability. So maybe starting start small. Start small. Yeah. Start just practicing mindfulness and, and mindfulness your teeth. meditation. Yes. Brushing when brushing your, your teeth. teeth when the stakes are really low. <laughs> I wonder like I know there's no data for this, but in terms of like the way we, we live in this world and how much crap we have in our mind how many people do you think are really having mindful sex (laughs) in this western culture it's got to be very low right uh, yeah i think i i I don't know we really don't have data on that but i think living in a very add kind of world makes it more difficult you know people have their phones on and and people have the tv on while they're having sex and all these things are happening all the time so yeah i think a lot of people are not having very mindful sex much of the time and could benefit from it because there is some research that has come out in the last like five to ten years looking into mindfulness and how that plays a role in sexual quality and it does people who are more mindful in general or who practice mindfulness during sex do seem to report better sex, more satisfying sex, more orgasmic sex, and so on. So definitely this might be something to look into. There are mindfulness meditation trainings and programs that people can go in and look into. All right, so let's uh, let's leave uh, our listeners with some homework. How about, <laughs> you know what, we'll have five minutes of mindful sex tonight after listening. <laughs> just five minutes. Just go in there, you know, if you want, set the timer or something like that that and just see if you could do five minutes of mindful lovemaking. What do you think? Sure, absolutely. If, if people can do it, I think it's a great homework assignment. All right. We'll see you next time on the Science of Sex podcast. Yes, and in the meantime, if you're enjoying this, please go to iTunes, rate and review the podcast because that's how more people can find it. Share it with friends. If you're enjoying it, let other people know how much you're enjoying it and maybe they can learn something about sex too. All right, I'm going to go get mindful. All right. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavilla.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been the Science of Sex. Science of Sex.